James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 reads, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, it would seem that I should spend the rest of the sermon this evening talking about James's practicality here of the exhortation that he gives. We could sum it up like this. Be quick to hear. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. We could say, be slow to speak. God gave you a tongue, but he also gave you a cage to keep it in. And we could say, be slow to anger. In other words, have a quick fuse, I mean, excuse me, a long-suffering or a long fuse. Insert any scripture you want about being long-suffering, right? So that's what James is telling us here. In interpersonal relationships, the way it works is that if you want to be godly, if you want to be righteous, and if you want to keep the peace among people, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In other words, you need to listen up, you need to clam up, and you need to calm down. We have often used this passage in that way. We pluck verse 19 out of context, and we make it stand as good practical sense in what we use in our interpersonal relationships with other people. But we need to consider the context around it, because this is not talking about our relationship with others. It's talking about how we respond to God. Let's look at the context around it. Let's look at uh, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so, so James starts off in chapter 1, right at the beginning of his epistle, talking about trials. And in this case, these trials come in the form of temptation. And how do you respond to temptation? Well, temptation is a testing. It's a testing of our fidelity. It's a testing of our faithfulness, our honor before God, our integrity before God. It's funny because we often pluck that out and make it stand as how we should respond to suffering. But it's not really talking about suffering here. It's talking about temptation, the trial and the test of temptation. When being true to the context means that we view this as our response to God. Now, look at verses 12 through 18. It says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. That is what is setting up what we just read in chapter 1, verse 19. So the context is trials, which are temptations, the testings of one faith. And it's within this context that James gives the admonition that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Who is this directed to? What is this talking about? It's not so much interpersonal relationships, although that would be a good way to handle personal relationships, right? 
being quick to hear, so to speak, so to anger. I mean, that would certainly help us in our relationships with other people. But the immediate context is talking about how we respond to God. Instead of opening your mouth, stop to hear what God has to say. Instead of being quick to be angry with God as if He is the one that is tempting you, remember that God doesn't tempt you. He may allow the temptation, but He is not tempting you. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Listen. Listen to what God is telling you. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. You ever talk to somebody and, and, and they won't listen because they're too busy thinking of what they're going to say and they keep interrupting? Same way with God. Listen to what He is saying. Quit interrupting and listen to Him. Be slow to anger. Because there's a purpose for this. And when I was living in Cassville, Missouri, there was a lady who was well known in the community and she was leaving the high school parking lot and she hit a parked car on her way out. Did pretty extensive damage to the parked car. Thinking no one saw her, she took off. She played the organ in the church and a church member confronted her and said, I, I noticed you hit a car in the parking lot. And she said, no, I didn't. He said, but you did. No, I didn't. He said, but I saw you with my own two eyes. I looked again and made sure, and it was you. You hit that car. And she goes, I didn't hit any car. Even when confronted with the truth, she wouldn't come clean. She wouldn't admit that she did what she was accused of. I mean, this man saw it with his own two eyes and confronted her, and she still would not repent. There are people like that when confronted with the truth of God's word that will not listen. There are people who confront people with the truth of God's word and the people will not listen. Here's the big idea that James is getting at. We must be quick to hear, verse 18, quick to hear the truth that declares who God is, verse 17, who we are, verses 14 and 15, and what God is doing in us through the trials that we face, verses 3 and 4. We must be slow to speak. So to speak, words of criticism about God. Verse 13, when trials come, knowing that these trials are able to produce stronger faith and a closer relationship with our Lord. Verses 4 and 12. We must be slow to anger toward the Father of lights. Verse 17, who gives generously. Verse 5, promises assuredly. Verse 12, and transforms personally. Verse 18. So being quick to hear, so to speak, and slow to anger is great when we consider it in light of interpersonal relationships, certainly we could probably all benefit by being, you know, quicker to listen and slower to speak and slower to anger. But the immediate context is talking about our response to God. Our, our, our stubborn pride may blind us to the truth of God's word. The fact that we don't want to change. Maybe the fact that, you know, we are uh, we're too busy talking that we don't hear. Being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's, it's about listening to God, our speaking about God, and our anger toward God. That's the immediate context of what James is talking about. But let's wade a little deeper into these waters. Because what you see here when you consider the whole of chapter 1 is you see two pregnancies. Did you notice that? There's two pregnancies here. Here's the first one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see it? So there's one birth, right? You think about it like this. 
How does a mouse get caught in a mouse trap? You know, probably its tiny brain has something to do with it, right? But a mouse trap does not look like a mouse trap to a mouse. That's why it gets caught. All the mouse can see is cheese. That's it. He doesn't consider the consequences. He, he doesn't consider anything but the food. And we're the same way. Our brains are a little bigger. But Satan traps us all the time, doesn't he? Because we focus intently on whatever that temptation is. Whatever the food is, the momentary pleasure, that's what we focus on. As James indicates, temptation isn't always a negative, though. Temptation can be a proving ground. In fact, the Greek word that's used there is peresmos, which means trials with a beneficial purpose and effect. So temptation can prove our fidelity before God. It's an opportunity, if you will, an opportunity to strengthen our faith, an opportunity for spiritual success. Temptation can be an indicator of just how strong we are spiritually, or I guess, of course, how weak we are. Consider it all joy, James says, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why the temptation is so vitally important, because temptation is where the process of sin begins. This is the pregnancy that we mentioned. Temptation, when we say yes to it, starts the process. And so when we say yes to the temptation, it sets in motion a chain of events that is similar to childbirth. Once the egg has been fertilized, certain developments take place, a new life is being born, the newborn child's name is what? It's, it, it's sin, right? But sin grows up and becomes a parent himself. And guess what sin gives birth to? Death. And so you have this life cycle that starts with temptation, that if it's fertilized, it gives birth to sin. Sin grows up, becomes a parent, and that parent has offspring. That offspring is death. Not only does temptation conceive and give birth to sin, but sin also becomes a parent and can have detrimental consequences to who we are. How we deal with temptation determines what the outcome is going to be, good or bad. Now understand, God allows these trials. He doesn't test us, but he allows them to occur. He allows the tempting. He allowed his son to be tempted. You remember that Matthew chapter 4? Let's just turn there. Matthew chapter 4. Look at Matthew chapter 4 starting in verse 1. So this is after Jesus was baptized. When Jesus came up out of the water, he receives the Holy Spirit. You ever thought of that? Didn't have the Holy Spirit before. After he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him as a dove. Okay? And so he's going into the wilderness to be tested. And here's what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You think the devil knows Scripture? Absolutely he does. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, 
The devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Folks, please hear me on this. Each temptation, every temptation that Jesus faced here applies to us in some way, shape, or form. I mean, you think about it. The first temptation that Jesus faced was to meet a justifiable need in an unjustifiable way. We've all done that, hadn't we? Yeah, you better be shaking your head yes, because we all have, right? We've all tried to meet a justifiable need in an unjustifiable way. Hopefully, You've never gotten to the point to where it's become a vicious cycle where it happens over and over again. But at least at some point, we have done this, right? We have tried to meet a justifiable need in an unjustifiable way. I can give you, a, for instance, you know, intimacy is a need that, that all human beings have. Maybe you've tried to meet that need of intimacy, a justifiable need in an unjustifiable way, like with pornography or something of that nature. So there's one. The second test, the second temptation that Jesus faced was to use God for his own end. We've done this as well. We've all been in a position where we accept the blessings from God, but then we, you know, we maybe want to be critical of God or you know, wonder what's going on when things don't always turn out fair. Maybe we treat God like Santa Claus or a genie, like a vending machine. We put in our request and we expect him to spit out the blessing, right? The third temptation was to gain a cross without a, a crown without a cross, I should put it that way. I mean, that's the shortcut method that Satan was offering Jesus, wasn't it? To give him a crown without having to go through with the cross. And I know of folks, and you do as well because probably you're one of them, I've been in that position, where if tempted with a shortcut, you might take it. We want a crown, but we don't want a cross. We want, a, we want salvation, but we don't necessarily want a Savior. Maybe we want to do it our own way until we get into trouble and we want God to step in. Every temptation that Jesus faced here, we've faced. I mean, it's really a microcosm of what we've all dealt with in our daily lives. In a broad sense, Jesus faced every temptation that we will face. He went first. He was tempted, yet was without sin. And how did he do it? And you say, well, because he was Jesus. Because he was deity. But remember, the humanity of Jesus is on display here in Matthew chapter 4. The humanness of Jesus is what's being exposed. Upon arising from the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And you think about how tempting this was. Because at any point, Jesus could have turned those stones into bread. He could have been done with the devil. But his humanity is on display. Equipped with the Holy Spirit, he, he's sent into the wilderness to be tempted. He had the ability to take matters into his own hands. But God set up this wilderness experience to show us that we have a Savior that can relate to us when it comes to temptation. And how did Jesus fight the temptation? How did he pass the test? It is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus kept deferring to the Word of God. Jesus kept letting God's voice be the loudest in his life. Over and over again, he drowned out the voice of Satan and turned up the volume on God's voice. Jesus loved God more than sin. You say, well, that's earth-shattering. 
When is the point where we say, God wins? At some point, God has to win in our lives. Do you love God more than sin? And in theory, yes. In application, that becomes a lot harder, right? A lot more difficult to put into practice. But temptation is not just a moment-by-moment thing. It's not just about considering the moment. This isn't just about a moment. It it may be your job, it may be your marriage, it, it may be your family, it's certainly about your faith, but sin always causes collateral damage. Giving in to temptation in the moment can have disastrous effects that are long term. Being in the will of God, allowing Him to control our lives is most important, more important than, than food or, or glory or anything else in this life. I believe that with all my heart, what Jesus teaches all of us in Matthew chapter 4 is that overcoming temptation and avoiding the process of sin begins with a heart, soul, mind, and strength that's totally surrendered to God, completely all in in a relationship with God. And please hear me on this. Even the most devoted disciple can fall. We are all limping disciples at some point, right? Some of us are limping into eternity. Even the most dedicated child of God gets caught in the snare. But there's a big difference between walking in the light and walking in darkness. There's a big difference between a cleansed sinner and a condemned sinner, right? Okay, but there's a second pregnancy that's described here. Maybe you caught it. Verse 21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Do you see the pregnancy? Do you see it play out here? The person who receives the word implanted and allows it to grow and develop within them is going to give birth to something. What is it? Righteousness, right? It's going to give birth to good things, to things that are godly, bringing forth the word of truth so that they would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So we have a contrast. We have a contrast between those who allow the temptation to overtake them And those who defeat the temptation, those who cut it off early. One brings forth sin and death, which is an unwelcomed offspring or offspring. And one brings forth good things, righteous things, which is obviously welcome. For the one, sin or death, you don't have a gender reveal party. You don't have a baby shower. They're not wanted. But the child that is wanted is the one that is born out of the word being implanted and growing and maturing inside of you. You know, it's one thing to uh, exegete a passage, to dissect it, to, to find out what it means. It's a whole other thing to put it into practice, right? And James, if he was anything, was practical. So when it comes to the practicality of defeating temptation... One of the things that we have to understand is that's where the process begins. You have no hope of breaking the cycle if you don't recognize the process. 
The process begins with temptation, which means how you handle temptation is going to mean everything going forward. If you pass the test at the very beginning, then obviously you have proven to be faithful. But if you let temptation get the best of you, it's going to set this whole thing in motion. The dominoes are going to start falling, right? And so you start the process. We've talked about this before, but one of the things we have to get straight is that this all begins in the mind. What we want to do is we want to stop short of sin by controlling our actions. Folks, when you start with your actions, you're already way too late. You can't start with your actions. You've got to start with the temptation. What we want to do too many times is we want to dip our toe in the pool or we want to dance around the periphery of sin and think that it's okay. That doesn't work. Cut it off immediately. You remember, you remember when Joseph was there with Potiphar's wife and she comes on to him. You know what? You remember what he does? He runs off naked. He just leaves his cloak with her. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. That's, that's a good way to respond to the temptation. Get out of there as fast as you can, right? So when it comes to the process and cutting off the process, you got to start at the very beginning, which is temptation. Actions are the wrong starting point. Notice what Paul says. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Man, if we could just live that, right? If we could just take every thought captive. The human mind is always thinking something. If we could just reflect on things that will lead to righteousness and not sinfulness. But here's something else. If we're going to be successful in defeating the, te uh, the temptation, then we've got to guard our eyes as well. Because not only do actions begin in the mind, they begin with our eyes. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus makes it very clear that our eyes can stimulate sin. We mustn't look upon those things that lead us from the temptation and into sin. Notice what else Jesus says, the very next verse. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What do you need to amputate in your life? What is it that you need to amputate because it's keeping you from being all in spiritually? How drastically are you willing to deal with sin? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Their use of metaphor, hyperbole, however you want to put it. I think that's what Jesus is getting at is you've got to be completely and totally on the offense to deal with this. You've got to be willing to take drastic measures to deal with the sin in your life. So if your problem is pornography, you may need to take a baseball bat to that computer. But how drastic are you willing to deal with it? You know, Job says in Job 31 and 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Again, great advice for us. How many of us have made a covenant with our eyes and we have said, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm not at letting my eyes bounce when it comes to these things. How important it is to start with the mind, to not start with actions, but to start with the mind and start with our eyes because the mind and what the eyes see, it's a playground. The devil knows that this is a playground. But too many times we don't put a fence around our playground and we've got to put a fence 
around our playground with Constantine wire at the top and whatever else we need to do to make it impenetrable. Where we fail to control our minds and our eyes, we fail to control our actions. Actions begin with what we think and what we see. So if we want to stop the process before it ever gets started, we start with the temptation. And James is saying, consider it pure joy when you face these various trials because these, these temptations are a way to prove your fidelity to him. Be quick to hear Slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear what the word of truth is saying. Slow to speak so that you can hear it. Quit speaking out against God and listen to what he has to say. And of course, be long-suffering because he's certainly been long-suffering with you. There were two pigs that were uh, feeding at the trough. And they would eat and eat and eat. And every time the trough got a little low, the farmer would come and pour more feed in the trough. It was a bottomless trough, if you will. Every time they ate and got close to the bottom, they'd pour more, the farmer would pour more feed in there. Finally, one of the pigs looks at the other and he says, isn't the farmer so good to us? Make no mistake, Satan's not being good to you. Satan's fattening you up. And he's going to devour you if you allow him to. Don't let that happen. If you have a need tonight that we can help you with, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone, if maybe like we talked about this morning, this race of faith is not going well for you, maybe you've stopped running, maybe you veered off course, maybe you need the prayers of this church family, don't leave here tonight without being right with God. Let us help you. David's going to lead us in a song, come as we stand and as we sing.